This is H10, Hanshin Tiger's English News. Global H10 Nation, you endured a long, bumpy Tiger's ride in 2022. The off-season is upon us, which means we can spend time on non-baseball hobbies. But don't lie to yourself. You love baseball. That's why you're here. So let's listen to an interview I conducted with James McKnight, author of Yellow and Black Fever, Bad Foreigner, and perhaps more in the future. James lived in Japan for many years and probably attended more Tigers games during that time than I have in my nine seasons as a Tigers fan. In today's interview and episode, we talk about his books, but also his fan experience from the turn of the century and the band of friends that kept him sane during some of his hard times living here. We also dig a bit deeper into the motivation behind writing the book, plus his friendship with former Tigers legend, George Arias. Check it out. Who's in the chair? Who's tea talking to? Who's in the chair? Maybe veteran, maybe new. Who's in the chair? Who's in the chair? Who's in the chair? Ladies and gentlemen, today I have got a special guest for you in this interview off-season series that we have been doing at H10 Hunting Tigers English News. It is none other than author James McKnight. I've got in front of me James's books right here. I've got Yellow and Black Fever. I've got Bad Foreigner. And then I also have something kind of special for the Japanese audience, and that is a Japanese translation of the first book, which in Japanese is called Americano Yaku Otaku ga Mitsuketa Lakuen. And so welcome to the show, James. Hi, Trevor. Good talk. Good to see you again. Yeah, you've been on the show before, correct? When I think when Yellow and Black Fever first came out. Yeah, it was about two years ago, I think. About I think it was about the same time, autumn or right. uh, early winter. Probably off season as well. Yeah. So you have written that book and then you followed it up with bad foreigner and just to give people a little bit of insight as to what the book is we've got here a kind of memoir of your time in japan how you became a hanshin tigers fan and your adventures that followed that first experience that you had so let's go back when did you first come to japan and what was your first experience at koshien and was that what got you hooked on hanshin tigers well, basically, I was just like anybody else. I just came to Japan. I mean, I'd been there in the 80s once when I was in college, but I never thought I'd go back. And then, you know, 12 years later, I, I ended up in the uh, year 2000 doing the touristy thing in Kyoto. And I, I had never gone to a baseball game the first time I went to Japan. So I was destined to go this time. And uh, I, I ended up at Koshien for a Giants-Tigers game in, in mid-September. You know, it was during the Nomura uh, Kantoku Jidai, which was pretty rough. Um, but I, I didn't know anything. And uh, I met some people. I went by myself. I met some Japanese baseball fans. They really made a strong impression on me. And I, I felt their passion. And it kind of reminded me of the team I follow in uh, America. Well, it's Cleveland Indians. And now it's the Guardians. But the team is not so strong but the fans have passion win or lose and i thought wow i, I think i found a parallel universe halfway hmm. around the world and uh you know with the bass drums banging in the outfield you know the indians have their bass drummer and i thought well, 
wow, this is just incredible. And uh, a year later, I decided to move to Japan to be an English teacher and met up with the same people and friends with them, God, 22 years later. So that's a pretty crazy story. But even crazier is the fact that you're from Arizona, correct? Yes. So being a Cleveland Indians fan in Arizona must have been kind of a trip. It must have been hard to build up any sort of community there. What kind of extents did you go to to stay in the loop as a fan of the Indians? Well, so the Indians had spring training here in Tucson since the late 40s all the way to the 90s. So uh, when I was a kid, that's all we had major league-wise. There was no Diamondbacks. So spring training was really big. I was bat boy a few times. And uh, again, the Indians were not a good team. So it was easy to get autographs and meet the players, get crack bats all balls so it's just like a dream come true for a kid that loved baseball that's pretty sweet so yeah um so that's kind of the link right and in your book you talk about some links of players that you either met or talked to or saw live um stateside that then ended up in japan but let's get back to you being in japan so you moved to japan in what 2001 2000 around 2001 then. yeah 2001. summer 2001 yeah and and you're you decide to follow the tigers and yet much like your experience in america you're not living in hyogo prefecture or osaka right you're all the way in the sticks in guma so what was that like following the tigers from the kind of the middle of nowhere and in a way that's kind of giants territory yeah it was a little strange especially when i really started getting into the tigers and understanding what was going on in fact, one Halloween, I dressed up like uh, a Tigers, you know, foreigner player, and I walked around downtown Takasaki with my Tigers uniform and my hat, and I got some catcalls, and and some people in a, a bar wanted to fight me. They 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 were Giants fans, and they couldn't believe the audacity of someone to wear that. And I I, I knew the rivalry was heated, but. You know, God, just an October night in Takasaki Gunma. I didn't think that would cause trouble, but um, I, I started feeling the, the intensity of the rivalry just there. And it, it started to get funny in the staff room at, at school where I was uh, at program ALT. You know, they'd tease me all the time. But yeah, there were no Tigers fans anywhere. I, I couldn't meet a single one. But again, that made me stand out and people thought it was funny. And, so, uh, yeah, that's kind of an interesting there. aspect, though, of your story and your tales that you would then make time on your weekends or on your during your time off to come all the way out to uh, to Koshien or to this area and take in like two, three, four ball games at a time. And you always ended up hanging out with the same group that in the book you call the Zet group uh, based on the part of the uh, stadium that you sat in uh, every time that you went to the ballpark. Now, putting aside the fact that the ballpark itself was different and the way to get tickets was different back in the day, like talk about your relationship with this clan of Tigers fans that you hung out with all the time. Give, like, give me some, maybe some names or some interesting uh, facts about these people. Yeah, the funny thing was, of course, I was a, a foreigner. And as I got to know these guys, I realized they were kind of misfits in society uh, japanese society you know and i was i was the only foreigner but one of the guys was named uh gandhi he had really dark skin and um 
you know, he sometimes uh, had, had trouble finding work and finding houses, but he was one of the leaders. But that, that gave him a lot of time to get tickets and, and sleep in the ticket line to get us tickets, especially for big games. Um, one of the other leaders was called the mother or Okan or Opasan. She worked in a daycare, but, you know, it was kind of our mother. She'd kind of keep us in line and organize everybody. We'd have meetings. Another guy was O'Malley. He's well-educated, you know, Buddhist monk, if you can believe that. But when he got in the baseball stadium, he had led, led a, a double life. I mean, he's dressed in his uniform and jeering the fans and jeering the first opposing team. And, uh, you know, these guys taught me a lot about the passion of Tigers fans and taught me a lot about Japanese baseball and if it wasn't for them, there's no way I could have lasted in Japan. I, it, they they took me under their wing, and I felt accepted. And uh, it was a strong bond that lasts today. So they're they're an interesting crew, and you mentioned them throughout the book. And in fact, because of our connection between you and me, you actually introduced me to O'Malley just just via text and stuff. So I've been talking to O'Malley back and forth, and like the way you describe him right now is is perfect. Like he he is very educated, you know. Like his English is outstanding, um, and he's also very well mannered. So I I assume maybe part of that is from his Buddhist monk background. Um, but he's very good about that. But then at the same time, I've yet to go to a game with him. But, you know, based on the descriptions in the book, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure it's a wonderful experience. But um, yeah, O'Malley uh, seems to have really taken uh, a shining to you. And in fact, did he come and visit you in the States at all? Or like, how have you kept this relationship with him going? Yeah, um, you know, during baseball season, we talk or text all the time. Uh, when I lived in Japan, unfortunately, I, I moved back to the U.S. in 2013. But, you know, we we text online or we, we call each other online. And uh, we've kept it up, even though I haven't been able to come back to Japan due to the pandemic. But, yeah, in, in the book Bad Foreigner, I bring him and about four other members of the Zet crew to spring training in 2005. Uh, we we go to Disneyland and Las Vegas, and we go to a lot of spring training games and meet different uh, former NPB players. Of, of course, Daryl May was one of the Tigers and Giants pitchers. We met him, Akinori Otsuka. We met them, and they were so shocked that, you know, the Japanese people didn't travel like they do now. I mean, you, you watch a, an Angels game now, and everybody's holding up Otani signs and traveling back then, it just – there weren't many Japanese people. Uh, well, so I would imagine, especially in spring training, when there weren't that many Japanese players in MLB, so there wasn't really that motivation for Japanese people to come out and, and check out uh, the players that they loved because they weren't there. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Ichiro, obviously, we know, set the standard and really opened things up in, in Matsui Hideki but, uh, a couple of years later. But, you know, it was really rare, and these these former players were like, Wow, what are you guys doing here in Arizona in March? And and we also made a trip out in 2008 or 2009. I brought O'Malley and another guy named nicknamed Tiger. We went to Dodger Stadium, Anaheim, uh, Diamondbacks game. And uh, yeah, you know, he ended up being the best man. And O'Malley became the best man at my wedding. So uh, yeah, I mean, pretty much my best friend. Uh, unfortunately, I 
like I said, I couldn't get back for the last three years, but I'm going to come back this summer. Sounds so I'm good. really looking forward to that. Great. Well, we'll definitely have to meet up as well. Now, let's go back to your hanging out with O'Malley at Koshian Stadium. Based on what I saw in the book, like you guys kind of got yourselves into a bit of trouble. And it sounds like the fan experience in the early 21st century is vastly different than what I've experienced since becoming a fan in 2014. Can you describe just what it was like to sit up in the upper part of the left field bleachers, kind of near the scoreboard, which I think is where you sat? Um, yeah. What was that experience like for you guys? What kind of things did you guys do to keep yourselves entertained? What were some of your entertaining stories without, of course, giving up too much of what goes on in the book? I mean, initially when I first got the coaching, I mean, the Tigers were pretty bad. It was very easy to get seats and, and you know, all the, the seats were just, you know, view stick. You could just get a ticket and sit anywhere. Um, but once they started getting good around 2003, Tickets got scarce, and then eventually all the seats became reserved, and it got really hard to find seats, and so we we couldn't afford season tickets, so we kind of moved around a lot. Um, Opasan, the leader, she had it in with the hunting management, so she was able to secure some seats for us. But, uh, but yeah, um, it seems like the guys they uh, the guys I was with in my end on they'd get bored sometimes and they want to you know coerce the Giants fans into fights I, I really wasn't into the fighting myself or picking on other fans but sometimes I got kind of lured into things just by association um which kind of scared by, me and by but, inebriation perhaps too yeah <laughs> yeah that could be you know later in the game uh a few too many beers a little too much hot sun uh, might have got to the guys and yeah I, sometimes after a game if O'Malley or Tiger or someone else got taken away by the 30 guards I'm like oh my god you know how are we going to get them out and um you know I but they always found a way out and um you know I I, I wanted to focus on baseball but they like baseball and kind of antagonizing Sometimes fans that weren't cheering or paying attention or, of course, Giants fans. So it was, you know, it was like a microcosm of, you know, there's a baseball game. There's, you know, some fighting going on. There's eating, drinking, talking. I mean, it's just a, a explosion of the senses almost, you know, but uh, really got your adrenaline flowing sometimes. Right. Um, so it seems like. You know, a lot of American or Western fans or people who are just getting to know Japanese baseball and they're digging through the Internet and trying to find information about Team A, Team B and the Tigers, they'll read about the Tigers fans being wild, boisterous, aggressive, throwing batteries at opposing players and stuff like that. And when I read that stuff, I kind of cringe because I'm like, that doesn't happen. And it might have happened back in the day. But I mean, it, I guess it kind of like some of that stuff maybe was still happening in 2001, 2002. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen, uh, in fact, one time I remember um, Tawny, uh, Giants outfielder. I can't remember where he used to play. I think it was on Oryx or, um, remember, but um, he married uh, uh, Ryoko. I don't know. She was a judo gold medalist. But I guess there was some link to uh, the Yakuza, and some Tigers fans were really on Tawny. And uh, saying these things, and uh, 
right in the middle of the game, the, the Hyogo Ken police come up and grab a bunch of people and just, you know, arrest them. And uh, it, it ended up not being us. But yeah, I mean, Tony had said someone had thrown something at his head. And I mean, God, I mean, we, this time we were just innocent. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it wasn't <laughs> just us. I mean, the, the Yaji yeah. were mean. I mean, throwing stuff. Um, I mean, I, I assume that little barbed wire is still there over the um, outfield fence. But I always yeah. wonder why there was barbed wire curved the other way. And I'm like, uh, I read some stories about Tigers fans in the 70s and 60s attacking their own players or opposing players jumping on the field. And I was like, okay, now I know why that, that wire's there. But right. I mean, it no, was you, like a European soccer stadium or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that the whole uh, 1973 winner takes all final game against the Giants, which the Giants slaughtered uh, the Tigers. And then they were unable to celebrate their pennant at Koshian Stadium because the fans, they basically bum rushed the stage, right? And they were attacking players. And I've got a picture up on my site of fans actually like trying to beat up Sadaharu O. So yeah, I guess back in the day, things were quite aggressive. Now, um, you started uh, regularly watching the Tigers, well, I guess live at the stadium and just following more regularly when you moved to Japan in 2001. And as you said, you left in 2013. When did you get the idea to write these books and how did that whole process take place well i I started a diary just due to the the boredom of living in guma and being a an alt which is kind of boring you could say it right exactly (laughs) first three years exactly i I was like i'm gonna remember this somehow so i kept a journal and um you know i mean i wanted to be placed in kyoko or kobe but or or Yokohama or something, but, you know, everybody wants to be put in a city. So they put me in Guma uh, due to some connection with a Phoenix school district, but, um, and the district I was placed in, in Guma, but, but yeah, it started as a diary and I just kept it up. I mean, I was trained as a journalist in, at the University of Arizona. So I, I was used to writing and then I got a job at the Guma Kencho as advisor for ALTs. And again, I couldn't use the internet. My my supervisor was on my case all the time. So I and but I did not have that much to do because there's only a hundred and something ALTs and not that much to advise. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna look like I'm really busy and tap away at my keyboard, and I'm just gonna start writing this journal on my computer to make it look like I'm busy, so my boss <laughs> is happy and. Uh, I started thinking, you know, wow, this is might be an interesting story someday. But it just sat there for 10 years. And then finally, I came home and started telling people in Arizona about all the experiences I had with baseball fans and just Japanese culture and society and struggling and and eventually learning Japanese and how to read and communicate and function in society and function at work. And people were like, God, this is fascinating. I said, okay, maybe it's worth telling more people about. So I, I got it together and self-published it. And I've met a lot of people. And it's really, I think I'm you know, trying to educate people that Japan's an amazing place, but it's not easy. But anyone can do it if you persevere and don't give up. So pretty special story in that 
Guma Prefecture basically funded the book for you in a sense, right? I mean, they were paying you uh, to sit at your desk and look like you're busy. And <laughs> what came the fruits of it was are these books. So, all right. So you've got you've got um yellow and black fever, followed up by bad foreigner. Um and I just want to touch on something that I, I thought was ironic, and this will kind of maybe bridge into the next topic. Uh, but you said here at the very the very last page, um, it says, um, I had my wife, my baseball friends, a comfortable home and no intention of moving back to the U.S. And then you flip the page to the about the author and it says James McKnight uh, now resides in his hometown of Tucson, Arizona. So what happened? Um, why? If you don't mind sharing with us, why did you move back to America? And yeah, we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, I mean, initially I, I, I was an ALT, then the advisor, but you know, you never get a pay raise and you never really get much uh, more responsibility. But I got a job at an elite college prep school, uh, middle school through high school, and it was a lifetime contract. So I, I thought I was I had it made. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I met my wife and we had some kids and I, I thought it was great and everything was going good. But um, things just got tense at work. And, uh, you know, I, I'd worked there for six years. Every new principal came in like, hey, this guy's been here six years. Let's give him the work of a teacher that's been here six years. Um, you know, regardless of his face is white or Japanese. And I just, I was just getting burnt out. I, I, I was struggling to keep up. And uh, I, I did like the students and my coworkers, but I had a wife and kids and I never saw them. I, and I know that's the Japanese way, but um, I, I thought I know my students better than my own kids. And uh, my wife and I came to a decision that if we moved to America, maybe we could spend more time taking care of our kids and, and helping them. And uh, that's kind of what happened. It was more for family and uh, then professionally, because my wife was happy with her job as a science teacher in high school. And, and I was happy, but just it was more uh, need a little more time. Yeah. You got to do what you do for the family, right? Yeah. It's important. Understandable. It wasn't easy though. I'll tell you, I'm back after being gone for so long, it was rough. And, and I'd never been a father. I'd never been a husband in America. I, it was, it was, uh, hard, but, uh, you know, it, it, things have worked out well. So. Glad to hear that. So now you've been back in America for almost 10 years. What's it been like following the tigers from afar? How well can you keep up with the tigers and what do you do to stay in the loop? Um, I can watch some games on streaming. Unfortunately, the games come on, you know, day games come on at 10 p.m., night games at 2 a.m., so it's a little rough. But I, I check the scores every morning when I wake up if, if I can't catch a game. And uh, I'm always reading, you know, Japan Today or Japan Times or Daily Yomiuri to get, um, you know, I, I know I, I know O'Malley would be mad at me if I read the Yomiuri Shimbun, but... Um, uh, you know, funding the the giant's machine, but um, but yeah, I, I I keep in touch that way through media and you know, oh, it's, it's Reddit and Twitter, and uh, obviously I subscribe to your newsletter through Japan Ball, so I'm not just following the Tigers, but the game in general, right? And uh, 
God, last season was something else. I, 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 I was, I was like, oh my God, the way this season started, I was like, oh, this is the way they were. Um, but you know, obviously things, uh, you know, came on. They came on strong midsummer, and later on, I was like, hey, this, this is exciting. So yeah, I, I, I do my best to keep track of them. The good news for you is that the team hasn't won a pennant since you've left, so you haven't missed any huge celebrations. <laughs> but hopefully, that will uh, come to. Hopefully, that will change in twenty twenty three. Um, so as you keep up with the Tigers, any thoughts about the current team? Thoughts on o Okada becoming manager again, and any favorite players that you have on the twenty twenty three squad? I mean, um, you know, I was there when Okada first became manager in two thousand four, and there was a lot of hope and optimism uh, that first year. I, I do talk about it in the book, Bad Foreigner. And, um, you know, he kind of fell short of expectations that first year, 2004. But then 2005, I mean, they ripped through the Central League and crushed the Giants. And God, I thought they were going to win it all again. But it was so hard to find tickets for the Japan Series. Um, I, I was able to get tickets for game six and seven, but obviously those never happened. Right. <laughs> uh, we got I mean, left. It was just like a crushing uh, blow. But I, I really think Okada, you know, maybe the second time around, you know, especially maybe he'll help the batters improve their average, cut down on the strikeouts, you know, Sato or Oyama. I mean, God, it. You know, they came on pretty well, but man, I, I looked at some of the stats and man, maybe he could help the batters a bit. Um, kind of I underwhelming. Would, yeah. I, you know, might be a refreshing change. He's Any not favorite better. players on the, on the new squad on the 2023 team. I mean, I, I, I checked out some of the, the draft. I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the high school players so much or the new guys, college players, but, uh, Right. And a lot of my friends said I look like Dunkel. Um, you know, so I I was like Dunkel. I, I I assume he's coming back, but um, Dunkel's uncle. No, Gunkel is not coming back, actually. Oh, no. Um he yeah, they cut everyone except for Kyle Keller. So there's talk oh, that oh, Gunkel no. may end up with the SoftBank Hawks. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but of course Sato is exciting. Every time he comes up at that, you know, strikeout or home run, I I mean I, I enjoyed the the excitement around him, you know, being a young slugger. Um, Oyama, I, you know, he, he became leader of the team. And I, I always hoped, you know, when some of those games are just zero to zero, I was like, okay, he's going to do it. He's going to pull the team together. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I tend to go for batters, I guess, more than pitchers. But, um, right. you know, um, in Koshian, you need strong pitching and, and, uh, you know, hey, you win one to zero, it still counts as a win. So, yeah, for um, sure. I'm, I'm hoping so, Okada can bring those two together and, and have a good winning combination. Sure hope so. Yeah. So back in the day when you were here and following the team, one of your favorite players was George Arias, who played for our team, I believe, what, from 2002 through the, yeah. four. 2002, three, four, I believe. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. And he's from the same town as you're from. And actually, he's back in Tucson as well. And you've been able to meet him on occasion. Is that right? Yeah, it's funny. He's about four years younger than me. So I, I was aware of him when he was in college, but I, I moved on um, right after college. So I, I missed out on seeing him play in person. But uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I end up in Japan, and here I am sitting in the bleachers, sweating bullets, and I'm watching another guy from Tucson, Arizona, on the field. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'd shout out to him, but, you know, it's so loud in the stadium and it's hard to talk. But, uh, yeah, in 2013, when I moved back um, through a mutual friend, I was able to meet him. And he was so surprised. There was another Hanshin Tigers fan in Tucson. And, you know, he gave me his number. We text. Um, I used to go to his batting uh, center. He he ran like a batting academy here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually just ran into him. Last month, they had a Mexican baseball fiesta with uh, about four Mexican teams coming to play. I'm just walking through the concourse, and there's George with one of his friends. And, he, he you know, I, I, I waited to talk to him because, I mean, he was surrounded by people. I mean, he's a legend here. And he, he introduced me to his friends. Like, this is my friend James. He wrote some books. I was like, wow, okay. Nice. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he remembered my name. And, uh, you know, I, I've helped him with some stuff. You know, he needs some help translating Japanese here and there, and um, he's helped me. And, yeah, it's it's a great connection. He he said the years he spent in Japan, his kids were little, and um, he'll never forget it. And he's indebted to the Tigers fans forever. So he played for the Oryx Blue Wave and then the Hunch Tigers, and then he actually had about a half season with the Yomiuri Giants. But um, the, the interesting thing is that he endorsed your second book, Bad Foreigner. And I'm going to read off of the back what he wrote. He said, McKnight captures the true essence of what it's like to be a fan of the Hanshin Tigers, one of Japan's most storied teams. Pretty cool to be able to get an endorsement from a former Hanshin Tigers player on your book. What was that feeling when you saw his name and his quote on the back of your book? Well, it just kind of came out. I, I gave him a copy of the first book. And uh, he just couldn't believe it. And I, t- I kind of told him, you know, dog-eared a few pages. And I said, George, these are the pages you're mentioned on. And uh, he said, hey, if you're ever writing another book, you need some help. Let me know. So I, I gave him a copy of the second book. And, and I, I didn't solicit him to write it. Uh, he said I loved it. You know, I, he, he said he couldn't understand what the fans were saying when they, they would do his cheer, you know, Messiah from usa he, mm-hmm. he said he couldn't he he said he said he knew he had a cheer but he didn't know what they were saying mm-hmm. so i helped him with that he's like oh my god this is like eye-opening you know an epiphany for him and he said hey i'll i'll, I'll you know he texted me something he said hey if you ever need an endorsement you know use this and uh i was like wow thanks george so um you know i think he wants to connect with tigers fans somehow and uh, he always mentioned I, I go to his batting cages or center or pictures of Koshian, pictures of him, you know, big posters of him, pictures with his kids at Koshian. Here's no Oryx Blue Wave pictures. There's no Giants pictures. It's all Tigers. So um, I know it means a lot to him. There's a certain amount of irony then to the fact that he is now scouting for the Giants. Hey, what do you think about that? Like, did that break your heart? Be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I saw him about a year and a half ago and we were talking uh, before I, I did some batting and uh, he goes, don't get mad at me. I said, why, why would I get mad at you? He's like, ah, I decided to get a job with the giants. I was like, Oh my God. I mean, I about jumped out of my shoes and I guess he'd been helping the tigers, but part time, but the giants offered him a full-time job. He said, Hey, I, I need, 
you know, a full-time job to, to supplement, supplement my income with this batting center, which he was just kind of doing for youth uh, baseball players. And I, I said, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. He said, hey, they pay well, and and I I feel like I'm contributing. But he said if the Tigers ever came calling with a full-time job, he'd, he'd jump in a second. There you go. All right. Okay. Well, that's that's what I wanted to hear. Now, so you, you've got a couple connections with the Giants because your wife also was a Giants fan, according to Bad Foreigner. So um, don't you go switching alliances on us here. Oh, no. Don't worry about that. That would never happen. So. <laughs> good, good, good. Last uh, bit of questions I have for you here, James. Let's shift now to uh, just the sequence. So you put out Yellow and Black Fever, then Bad Foreigner. And then I think after that is when you had the first book translated into Japanese, correct? Yeah, O'Malley was the inspiration behind that. He said, "He said, hey, you gotta put this in Japanese." I said, I, I, "You know, I, I can speak and I can read. You know, at a uh, you know, kind of intermediate level, there's no way I could translate a book." But O'Malley couldn't help me. But I found a translator here that worked for the University of Arizona. She's Japanese. She's a professor here mm -hmm. and uh, of East Asian studies. She helped me translate it. And I, I thought, you know, no one in Japan is going to care about what a, what a foreigner thinks. But O'Malley and, and the translator said, hey, you know, you've got a story with a unique perspective, a countryside school. You know, a lot of Japanese are always curious about what goes on inside a countryside school. Um, maybe your experiences of failure might make people laugh uh, the way I and might have made some cultural faux pas. So I thought, okay, if they think it's it's worth telling my story, um, I invested the money in getting it translated and getting it uh, published on Amazon. And, um, you know, it, it hasn't sold as well as the other two books, the English versions, but, you know, I made an investment in it and, and I hope whoever's read it is happy and and can learn something from my experiences so my take is yeah like you were saying earlier um the english version really appeals to the western audience or english speaking english reading audience that might say what is it like what is it really like to live in japan because people have you know all sorts of uh fantasies about what it must be like to live in japan but you lay it all out on the line it's very clear like this is not it's not all roses it's not all anime and you know electronics and all that kind of stuff there's a real japan out there and you really portray that quite well now what do you think oh you did already talk about this a bit like what an, a japanese reader might get out of the translation uh, but another one that i really think is fascinating is for some anyways who are genuinely concerned they've never been a foreigner in a foreign land having to learn a new language and experience all these new cultural norms that are completely well foreign uh, to them, right? But you really um, portray that clearly. And so I would suspect that a Japanese reader would be able to kind of get into the mind of, well, at least your mind, but that would lead them to get some insight into what it's like to be a foreigner, both for maybe other foreigners they know, but also for themselves if they ever decide to move overseas. Yeah, that, that's true. You know, I, initially when I got chosen to be placed in Guna Prefecture, I, I did internet searches for Gunma. I did internet searches for anywhere, Takasaki, my bus, there was nothing. And I mean, this was when the internet was in its infancy. But I was like, oh my God, what am I getting? 
into, but I, I took the leap and I ended up there and it ended up being a blessing because if, if I had been placed in some city where there were a lot of other foreigners and a lot of other people to speak English to, there's no way I would have stayed. Um, there's no way I would have learned Japanese or there's no way I would have tried to blend into society because there would be no reason to, but since I was in Gunma, um, I, I had no one to talk to. So I said, oh, I better learn Japanese. I, there's, I'm going to be an outsider forever. So it, it turned out well and, um, it was rough, but I, you know, they, the old saying is, you know, it doesn't kill you, make it stronger. And I, I did things I never imagined I could do. And I succeeded in things I never thought I would even attempt if I hadn't left us and uh it's made me into a more open-minded person and you know i love japan and the people and i understand them better because i could communicate and i could read and understand their mindset so um yeah i the person that left in 2001 to go to japan and the person that came back was completely different but i'm uh changed for the better because of of what i learned from the japanese you could take that exact quote and just replace the U.S. with Canada, and I would probably put my <laughs> name on it because there you go. <laughs> I mean, we kind of have parallel experiences in a sense because you know I was I was actually like rural Okinawa when I first came to Japan, and yeah. you know, there was nothing on the internet about this area. Um, I didn't know anything. I was like, "What am I doing?" But I took that leap of faith too, and same thing. Were it not for the fact that I was in rural Okinawa, like on a small remote island there, I don't think I would have fallen in love with Japan the way I did. I probably would have used uh, my experience in Japan as a two year kind of a leaping pad to get back to Canada and back into, you know, a normal life. But instead, my normal life has been a crazy adventure in Japan. So, yeah, I love that, um, you know, we have that kind of similarity to our stories. I'm glad that you put it into print, uh, into literature. And um, I'm hoping, as I said uh, earlier, that this is going to get to a lot more Japanese people, that they're going to read the Japanese version, relate to the story, and you know maybe even share it with their friends or whatever. James, I wish you all the best of luck with sales. Uh, final question. Are there plans for a part three? There are. I, I have kind of a rough notes or a draft going on but um it's gonna be hard i started up a job as a middle school teacher again i know it sounds crazy especially in the u.s but uh kind of got my hands full at the moment but i've got some other people that i've met that have read the first two books and they're like hey every great story is a trilogy you've gotta you've gotta cap it off so i i've got a motivation i just need to find the time so Fair yes, enough. eventually there will be. I, I don't know exactly when, but uh, someday there will be. Well, James, seeing as how you've had two books put out and we've now had you on the show twice, you know what that means if you put out a third book, right? You're coming back. Okay, great. I I look forward to talking to you again. Um, whenever it is, uh, I, I get that third book out, but uh, I know we'll keep in touch. Definitely. All the best to you in 2023, James. And uh Hopefully, we're celebrating a Tigers victory at season's end, eh? Oh, yeah, for sure. I I'm, I can't wait for the season to start again. I, uh, I'm i sure it's a lot colder there in uh, Nishinomiya than it is in Arizona. But, yeah, I can feel winter coming on. And um, 
I'm already waiting for that February day when uh, you can see some spring training news. You know it. You know it. All right, James. Thanks for your time today. Okay, Trevor. Thanks. Always great talking with you. Once again, thank you, James, for spending some time with us, talking about your book, talking about your love for the Hanshin Tigers. Everyone, you probably know this by now, but James McKnight is someone that I completely envy because he had the wherewithal and just the motivation to write this book, something that I wish that I had been able to do up until this point. He did it. He took that leap of faith. He put in the work. He has produced two books, um, excellent uh, talks about his fan experience, about life as a foreigner in this country of Japan. So hopefully at some point I'm going to be doing something similar. Maybe not in the same vein as what Mr. McKnight has written, but I will do something that hopefully will please Tigers fans, baseball fans, and just people who love Japan. So be on the lookout for that in 2023 and beyond. Um, please check out James McKnight's books, Yellow and Black Fever, Bad Foreigner, and if you are Japanese or if you want to read one of these books in Japanese, it is called America no Yakyu Otaku ga Mitsuketa Rakuen. You can find all these books on Amazon.com or Amazon.co.jp. Once again, James McKnight, thanks for your time. Everybody out there, enjoy your off-season. We'll be back with some more interviews real soon. So let's keep it real. Let's go. Hanjin Tigers.